Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Welcome to the 200th episode of Inspiring Leadership. And I'm very lucky on this episode to have General the Lord Dannett, GCB, CB, MCDL. Uh, Richard Dannett, I've known for some years and he's been a great inspiration to me, which is why I wanted him on this particular series. He's been a soldier for over 40 years before he retired. And he served at every rank possible within the military from platoon commander in the Greenhouse, company commander, the commanding officer of the Greenhouse, the commander of 4th Armoured Brigade, then on to command 3rd Mechanised Division, the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps commander, and then the commander-in-chief land before becoming the chief of the general staff. Uh, after serving his 40 years in the army, he uh, became constable of the Tower of London, and he's now an independent member of the House of Lords, columnist in the Telegraph, and he does so many different things, but particularly was also the co-founder of Help for Heroes because welfare of serving and veteran soldiers is something dear to his heart. So without further ado, uh, Richard, it's lovely to have you on the series. Would you perhaps begin by telling us a bit about um, a shortened version of your history, which um, it, I do recommend to people leading from the front, your autobiography. Um, but, but what was it that shaped your early life and, and, and sort of people and events um, that, that, that uh, made such a difference to the leader you are today? Well, Jonathan, um, thank you very much for inviting me to take part in your podcast and a real privilege to be your guest on your 200th edition. I think it's fantastic that uh, you've um, produced 199 podcasts up to this point, and I'm delighted to be your guest on your, on your 200th. Um, yes, you, you allude to my autobiography, um, Leading from the Front, um, 135,000 words there, so quite difficult to condense that <laughs> in just, in just a, a, a moment or two. But I think um, we are where we are in life, not necessarily as a result of a, a blueprint that you set out for yourself at the outset. Um, I think it's an aggregation of events and circumstances and experiences that uh, surround you as you go through your, your life development. I won't use the word journey. Um, when Tony Blair called his book a journey, I'm afraid I've gone rather off using that, uh, that expression, but that kind of begs another whole bunch of issues. Um, when I was in my last couple of years at school, uh, I rather hankered after joining the army. It just seemed to appeal to me. Um, my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation had fought in the First World War and the Second World War. Um, so my mother thought me voluntar voluntarily wanting to join the army was completely nuts because um, those two generations had gone through the awful First and Second World War. But I, I was attracted to what I thought the army uh, had to offer. Uh, those older and wiser than me at school said I shouldn't do that, but um, I should ideally go to Cambridge, read law and think about being a barrister. Um, well, I, I duly sat the Archbridge exams and went to Cambridge for an interview. Um, someone had very helpfully said to me, one question you're bound to be asked is, do you do any law reading? And a really good answer to give is, yes, sir, I read the law reports in the Times. 
Well, uh, the interview was going quite well. And, and then the question came, do you do any law reading? Yes, sir, I heard myself say, I, I read the law reports in the Times. And I thought, good, well done. You've managed to mention um, that you do some reading. What cases recently have interested you? Oh, this I thought was getting a, a bit close to the bone. So as quickly as I could, I said the bodies on the Moore trial, Myra, Hindley and Brady, which you only had to be vaguely news aware in the late 1960s. Yeah. Everyone knew about the bodies on the Moore trial. And I thought, good, you've mentioned a trial. And what about that case did you find so interesting? Oh, I thought that's getting a bit below the belt. And as quickly as I could, I said, well, the fact the criminals had got away with it for so long. And he looked over his half glasses at me and said, I think, Mr. Danner, you might be better suited to joining the police force and reading law in this college. So I didn't go to Cambridge. I didn't read law. And I did what I wanted to do, which was to join the army. So from school in July 1969, I went straight to Sandhurst in September 1969. In those days, Sandhurst was a two year course and we were all school leavers. So I did what I wanted to do. And actually, uh, I sound perverse to say it. I enjoyed the two years at Sandhurst. They were jolly tough. They were difficult. But you learned a lot about yourself as a young man. We did the kind of developing in that two years that others do in the three years of university. Um, and then very quickly, I found myself, with, <laughs> it sounds ridiculous to say, but within two and a half weeks of commissioning, I found myself commanding a platoon of 27 soldiers on the streets of Belfast in August 1971. Um, these days in the army, before we send a battalion to Iraq or Afghanistan or going to say Ukraine in times to come. Um, we give them three or four months pre-deployment training. I had no pre-deployment training and found myself commanding a platoon on the streets of Belfast in very difficult circumstances. And can I, I, can I just, can I just, um, just ask you a quick question, uh, Richard, on that point. Um, you mentioned Ukraine. Again, it's a, it's a mute point, what's going to happen. But do, do you have a view on what might happen in Ukraine? Do you think it will yeah, turn I, to I, war? I, I do. And it all comes down to Vladimir Putin. And in the context of this podcast, it's worth just dwelling on that for a moment. Scrape Vladimir Putin to the core and you find an unreconstructed, unreformed KGB colonel whose beloved Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact was destroyed in 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down by the cohesion and harmony of the West led by the Americans. Hmm. Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, significant leaders, significant leadership, and the West was united. What Vladimir Putin would really like to do is, and he's doing it by the buildup uh, on the Russian border with Ukraine, by pressing in the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania in the past, by his grabbing of Crimea. He's trying to pose questions to the West in such a way that he would like to promote disharmony amongst the member nations of NATO. Because what he would really love as his epitaph on his tombstone, the man who destroyed NATO. And he can do it not by invading Ukraine, but by threatening, by intimidating, and by causing dissension. The Germans having one approach, the French having one approach, the Americans still being weak in leadership, the UK having a different approach. That's what he'd really like to do. So famous last words on the 24th of January, 2022. I don't think he's going to invade, certainly not invade in a major way, but he's asking questions, he's posing a situation, and he wants to promote disharmony uh, amongst the NATO nations. That's his real objective, in my yeah. view. 
Yeah, uh, that, that makes an awful lot of sense. And but it must be quite galling for you having commanded the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps and worked with multinational nations in Kosovo and, uh, and Bosnia to, to see things, um, him sort of getting in there and breaking, breaking up the cohesion. Well, that's absolutely right. And of course, the big issue as far as Ukraine is concerned is that Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Were Ukraine to be a member of NATO and there to be an attack on NATO, then Ukraine could perfectly reasonably have required other member nations to honour Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty, which states quite clearly that an attack on one is an attack on all member nations. Mm. But Ukraine, critically, is not a member of NATO. And actually, rightly so, it's not. Mm. Again, one has to remember the relationship, the historic relationship between Russia uh, and Ukraine. Remember also that Khrushchev, that famous Soviet leader, was himself Ukrainian. And it was never envisaged while the Soviet Union existed that Ukraine, as part of the Soviet Union, Ukraine as an extension, if you like, of greater Russia, would be anything other than in the Russian sphere of influence. Mm. So so when post-1989, the West perfectly reasonably encouraged the Eastern European countries to join the European Union, to come into the Partnership for Peace programme, to join NATO, That was perfectly reasonable because those countries were only Soviet because they had been occupied Mm. by the Red Army in 1943, 44, 45, as it swept through Eastern Europe um, as far as Berlin. So they reverted to what they wanted to be. But Ukraine was different. Mm. And when the West has made such uh, attractive overtures to Ukraine, um, it's really upset the Russians. Uh, If I say it's almost like the relationship between England and Wales, mm. um, almost indivisible. I know there's an argument about it, but but Ukraine and Russia, and Russians certainly saw Ukrainians in the same sort of England and Wales relationship. Mm. So it's right that Ukraine is not a NATO member. It's right that we morally support Ukraine, give them weapons and training and all the rest of it. But frankly, um, it's not right that we would commit British soldiers at this time mm. to fight for Ukrainian sovereignty if they were a member of NATO, different issue, but they're yeah. not. So that yeah. issue doesn't apply. Yeah, no, it's a whole fascinating area. And I, I mean, you love history and it's one of your, your great loves, <clears throat> which we often shared when we were uh, together in a wet wood in Germany waiting for a helicopter to pick, pick us up. But I, I seem to remember that Kiev and, and Ukraine is in many ways a sort of spiritual homeland for the original Russians and all that went on. So to, to separate the two, as you say, would be... Phenomenal. Talking about history and what goes on in your book, it was very interesting and it made a lot of sense to me when you talked about William Dannett, who I understand was your great grandfather, who had farming and faith. And it's so nice seeing you coming back to the land, running your farm there in Norfolk uh, and also having your strong faith. Do you want to just say a bit about William and farming and faith, perhaps? Yes. I mean, my my great grandfather, William, I mean, my extended um, paternal family, um, farmed in Essex for, for quite a long time. Um, I think there were 300 years of dead Danats buried in Great Waltham Churchyard. But, um, but William Danat um, was a very innovative farmer. Uh, he was farming in the last quarter of the 19th century and the uh, first days of the 20th century. We, in the last quarter of the 19th century, we had a succession of very wet, very wet years much land became waterlogged, became unfarmable, and he was very innovative in 
uh, inventing some of the early mole drain type systems and draining heavy Essex clayland uh, and restoring it to being cultivatable land. So he was he was a, a successful farmer, mm. but he also had a very uh, alive and traditional uh, Christian faith um, in a way that was appropriate for the late 19th century, uh, early 20th century. Um, very much a man of the land, a man of the seasons. Um, and I think recognizing that farmers can do what farmers can do, but actually the almighty ultimately uh, has the um, has the whip hand on all this. Um, um, so that um, it, it very much came together as far as he was concerned, the practical, which was himself, and the spiritual, which he couldn't control. And um, for him, the spiritual side of his life was very important, as indeed uh, over the years it's become for me as well. Yeah, and, and that was a, a lovely connection for me because uh, when I was a company commander and you were commanding officer, um, your faith was was very strong there and, and you were a great influence on me. And I remember the sort of, you probably never heard this story, maybe you have, that we always sort of, as we sat in the anteroom of the mess saying, you know, what's going to happen with Richard and his girl? Well, well, he'll either become a bishop or head of the army or, or he'll become a politician. And in some ways, you've managed to do all three that we, in our, in our anteroom gossip, had. Uh, but uh, it's, it's been very, those three things have been very important, haven't they? Well, I haven't become a bishop. I don't think I see the opportunity of becoming bishop. I have been church warden here in uh, our parish in Norfolk for about 35 <laughs> years, but, uh, but that's a separate issue. Um, and yes, I did think uh, one stage, um, yeah, true, when I was a captain, um, after I'd been the adjutant of the battalion, I did seriously think about leaving the army and going into politics, trying to get elected to the House of Commons, which for a whole variety of reasons, I chose to stay. We can come back to that if you like. I chose to stay in the army which clearly I did. Um, so from my point of view, it's quite fascinating now to have wound up as a life peer uh, in, the, in the House of Lords. Um, and I'm pretty active in the House of Lords and, in, and enjoy that. And um, so in a sense, I'm having a, a late parliamentary career while earlier in my life, I thought perhaps I would like to have had a parliamentary career. So you know, yeah. things, things come around in time. They do. And of course, that touches on a very um seminal moment in your life uh, I mean a number of things happened to you which uh, I, I seem to remember you said I'm getting a bit of a message here uh, one you you had I seem to remember a, 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 a very bad car crash while falling asleep on the way back from Germany you should have gone into a tank ditch and died you actually drifted across as I recall into a field that happened to be that particular patch of the autobahn had a field you you had two people shot either side of you but you lived when the IRA fired at you on one of the occasions, it wasn't the occasion you got your military cross, but it was on a, a very hairy occasion. And then in, if I recall, in 1977, while adjutant of the 1st Battalion of the Greenhouse, and your commanding officer was Peter Inge, uh, Field Marshal Lord Inge as he is now, you had a terrible stroke, which has um, affected you since. Um, I might have not relayed those stories quite correctly, but is that about right? Yes, this is right. On the 11th of November, 1977, um, we were about to have our regimental armistice day service. As the adjutant, I was responsible for organizing it. Um, the due time came, the service went ahead. Everyone realized the adjutant wasn't there. Um, after the service, they found me uh, on the floor of battalion headquarters, paralyzed, having had what turned out to be a major stroke. And I was completely paralyzed down the right-hand side. Um, I spent the next month in bed in um, big teaching hospital in, in Berlin, which is where we were stationed. and. 
during the course of that month, um, it gave me an unusual opportunity to be a spectator on life and a reflector on my own life. Um, and it was then that I realized that there had been several occasions, and you've just alluded to them, once when I drove off the road, once when the soldiers either side of me were shot, another occasion when my company commander and a complete bomb disposal team mm. went up and killed just 30 yards uh, in front of me. Um, there were occasions when I could have, perhaps should have lost my life, but I hadn't. And on each of those occasions, when I realized I'd had a lucky escape, I had asked myself, well, you know, is there more to life than just rushing around like a, like a really busy thing? Um, or should I sort my sort of life out a bit and work out what was important and what was not important? And after all those occasions, I shrugged it off and, and just got on with life. But when I was in Berlin, paralyzed, lying in bed in hospital, I couldn't shrug anything off. Um, so it did force me to think about what was important in life. Mm. And I came to the conclusion at that stage that the Christian faith and the Christian message um, and the truths of that were the most important thing in life. And I then resolved that actually I wanted to try and um, live my life in the way that Christ had suggested that, that, that we should, um, focus on sort of the higher things um, and do what was, what was right, as opposed to just what, what I wanted to do, hmm. and um, set off down a track to, to do that. Now, no one's perfect. I'm certainly not perfect. Um, and, we, and we fail and we, and we let ourselves down from, from time to time. But, um, um, but um, oh, I just see a cup of coffee arriving. Yeah, so that's okay. I, I, I to say that actually I'm doing a book. So, so that's okay. That one, please? <laughs> you don't, don't want to miss your cover of it. This is brought to me by Color Sergeant Crichton, who's worked. Oh yes, I years. remember Color Sergeant Crichton. Um, Greetings. Yes. And the important thing is that when I retired from the army, he retired from the army as well, and still looks after me. So that's um, that's, that, that's very good. Um, yeah. Lovely connection. But, um, but the point I was just 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 trying to make there was that um, that opportunity in Berlin gave me an opportunity to reflect on life, reorder mm. my life, and decide what was really really important. And then I've tried to to live following those set of principles. Uh, and, and was it was it um, Peter Inge who was one of the people who convinced you to stay rather than to leave? Because I think he was quite an influence on you, wasn't he? Yes, I mean I've always had huge respect for for Peter Inge. Um, <laughs> interestingly enough, when I visited the Greenhards as a schoolboy, before I'd even joined the army, I was attached to A Company, First Battalion Greenhards then commanded by Major P.A. Inge, and was really impressed by him and his company. And that was a significant factor in why I decided to join the Green Herds. Mm. Um, fast forward, when he was the commanding officer, I was the adjutant. And uh, again, fast forward, um, when he stood down after many years as Colonel of the Regiment, I followed him as Colonel of the Regiment. And fast forward again to him being in the House of Lords and me being in the House of Lords, um, we'd often sit next to each other in the chamber and I would say, good afternoon, Colonel. He'd say, good afternoon, Adjutant. Um, <laughs> and, and I've always had enormous respect for, for Peter Inge, uh, his leadership style. Um, he, others will know him well. Um, no nonsense. Pretty clear what he wanted to achieve. Um, but significantly, if you made a mistake, he would tell you what you had done wrong. He would try and show you what you should do right in the future and give you a second chance invariably. Mm. Uh, if, certainly if he thought 
that your career was worth salvaging. Um, <laughs> um, but woe betide you if you made that mistake a second time. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I have huge respect for him as a, as a leader, a determined man, um, fit, enthusiastic, principled uh, individual who I have thoroughly enjoyed working with, working for, and being mentored by over time. Yeah, and, and that, that raises another topic which has come to, to front of mind. The Green Howards, are now part of the Yorkshire Regiment, produced a phenomenal number of very successful leaders, not only just in uh, the military, but they went out and did other things in business because uh, um, a number of very successful officers do well in business too. The, the skills are very transferable and desperately needed in business more than ever, and certainly in politics. Look at the situation today. Where are the leaders? Um, what do you think allowed a single battalion county regiment uh, to produce so many leaders like you and Peter Inge and Nick Horton and a number of other uh, generals, way above what other regiments were doing? What was the, the secret source? I think there are several things. Um, the colonel of the regiment uh, when I joined was one General Desmond Gordon, who shortly before he retired from active service in the army, had been the deputy commandant at Sandhurst. So it's been a lot of time looking at the sort of qualities of the cadets, having a very clear understanding of the sort of person that would make a good officer uh, in, in his regiment. And one of the responsibilities, one perhaps the chief responsibility of the colonel of the regiment, of the head of the tribe, if you like, is to recruit and bring on board good candidates to be officers uh, in that regiment. And General Desmond was very good picking out likely potentially successful candidates. So he brought a lot of good people into the regiment. Um, undoubtedly, success breeds success because one learns from one's superiors, uh, and that is undoubtedly helpful. But then thirdly, Greenhard soldiers are remarkable soldiers. They, from the Northeast, um, from North Yorkshire, a large number of them from, from Teesside, quite an underprivileged part of the world, um, but determined, hardworking, and, and if well-led, and they approve of the leadership that's above them, they will work very, very hard for you. So I think a combination of having picked the right candidates to come to the regiment, those candidates being bright and sensible enough to look around them at the successful leaders just above them and decide to follow them and emulate their example, Add that to soldiers who, when they recognize good leadership, will really put their back into things. Mm. Those, I think, are the three principal ingredients which led the Greenhards to, for a very small county regiment, to produce an extraordinary number of senior officers uh, who, as you said in a moment or two ago, have been fortunate enough to get to succession of very senior positions in the army uh, and elsewhere. Yeah. Indeed, there was a moment um, when I was commander in chief that I I realized that we had an officer serving in every rank in the British Army. Wow. And we assembled those individuals on the steps of the ground entrance at Sandhurst and had a picture taken. Five-star Field Marshal Inge, four-star General, which was myself, three-star Nick Horton, two-star Andrew Farker, one-star Nigel Gallia, and all the way down from Colonel to Second Lieutenant to Regimental Sergeant Major to Private Soldier. Yeah. And um, it was, I think, truly unique in peacetime to have a, a, someone in the regiment in every rank in the British Army. 
Yeah, it's very special. Before I go into the next question, there was one lovely connection. When I was ADC to Field Marshal Lord Inge, when he was doing the role you did, the Chief of the General Staff, um, there was only one person that he was anxious about, and that was General Desmond Gordon. He said, if he ever rings, you know, just clear the decks. And there's a whole story about it. But essentially, um, he meant to invite the Field Marshal to lunch. He was meeting the Prime Minister, couldn't go. So he invited me to lunch. But I forgot to have lunch with him. And there's a whole story behind that, which I was just so appalled about. I thought my life was over. But the lovely thing was, a month later, he invited me again. And then this time, I did go to the club and had lunch. And he was the most inspirational person I've met. And he said, you've learned from that, haven't you? You'll never be late again or forget anything. And I, and I made a point not to. Um, Very good. <laughs> so lovely, lovely story to, to link in with General Desmond Gordon there and the Green Hats. Um, if, if you look at your whole career, Richard, if you were, there's so many moments uh, and, and the book's definitely leading from the front, definitely people, I recommend people listen to it or read it. Uh, it's profound uh, for so many people who have. If you were to pick out one of your proudest moments and what you learned from that and one of your darkest moments personally or uh, career wise, uh, what would that be? And, and, and how did you treat those two imposters just the same as Kipling would say? Well, I'm often, often asked that question. And in terms of my proudest moment, if you like, or, or the moment in which I reflect almost positively, it was when I was commander of British forces uh, in Bosnia in 1995-1996. Because during that period, we, uh, the war was coming to a climax. Uh, a ceasefire had been agreed. We had to manage the ceasefire between the Muslims, the Croats, uh, and, and the Serbs. And then the formal peace agreement um, was made at Dayton in the United States and then had to be implemented on the ground. We had to separate the armies, take the heavy weapons off the contending factors, factions, um, and just manage that whole peace process. And I remember going into a Serb village, and up to that point, we'd never operated on the Serb side of the confrontation line, and it was quite risky uh, going across there. We didn't know what sort of reaction the Serbs would, would give us, but that's not really the point. Going into this village, I, I was talking to a group of old men, and I explained to them the war was now, now over, and we had come to implement the peace. And those old men cried, and it's a really powerful emotion when old men cry. And although soldiers are trained to fight, soldiers are trained to conduct aggressive operations, Actually, what it's all about is resolving those conflicts and bringing peace and restoring people's lives to a better place. And when those old men cried because they realized the war and the fighting was over, that was a moment of huge, huge job satisfaction. And that has always remained for me the highlight of my military career. Not that we successfully conducted operations and killed terrorists or the rest of it, but actually we brought peace. Mm. Um, mm. And so that's on the positive side. On the negative side, well, I suppose there are several things one, one, could, um, one could talk about. I, I suppose the, the saddest day of my life was 17th July 1975, which I've alluded to already in, in South Amar, when uh, we were conducting an operation to neutralise an improvised explosive device uh, at a crossroads uh, between Crossmaglen and Fork Hill. Um, there was a milk churn that we were very suspicious of, We'd reconnoitred the area quite extensively beforehand. Peter Willis, the company commander, had planned a very good operation. 
which we began to conduct. And having put a cordon in place, the bomb disposal team flew in. Um, Peter briefed them on, on what the operation was. Uh, he and I and the team started to go forward to a vantage point to show them where to start their clearance work. Peter then stopped me and gave me an air photograph, told me to study it, ready for another operation in that area that weekend. So I stopped. They went forward about another 30 yards. Half a minute later, tremendous explosion, and all four of them had been instantly killed. They were standing on 70 pounds of commercial explosive. The milk churn was a decoy. Um, the real device was at a gap in the hedge, which was where Peter had taken them to, to show them where the, to show them where the, where the milk churn was. And from talking with four people, 30 seconds later, there was just four completely dismembered, mem dismembered body bodies. Um, at that moment, you realize the frailty and the fragility of life. Um, someone, Peter Inge that morning, he and I had been standing side by side, shaving together in Cosmogram police station, talking about the test match that was going on, you know, here and now things. And then suddenly that person was gone. Others suddenly were gone. And you really do realize the importance of life the importance of living life well, because actually none of us know when it's going to end. The only certainty in life is that one day we'll die, but it's just one day and we don't know when that day is going to come. So living life as if this was your last day actually mm. is really, really important. Um, and it was a terrible day, um, but it was an important day as well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it was great bringing peace to those people in Bosnia, but it was a terrible lesson to learn when four of your comrades um, are completely blown to smithereens um, yeah. in, in front of you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's such a hard one. And, and was it not then, there's a lovely, a nicer connection to that, was Jim Willis, uh, who I'm not sure the connection with Peter, but Jim served as adjutant of the Greenhouse and has gone on to be uh, have a successful career in the army. What was the connection with Jim? Yes, um, Peter Willis's brother, um, who actually it happened was one of my instructors at the junior commander staff course. Um, that was Jim's Jim's father. Uh, Jim's father. So Peter Willis was uncle to Jim Willis. Um, mm. So yes, it was wonderful that um, Jim was one of the adjutants uh, along with David O'Kelly when uh, I was commanding a battalion. So mm. that's the sort of strength of a of the British Army, strength of a family regiment. Um, yeah, very, yeah, very special. Uh, yeah, very special. And my next question was a, a bit of advice uh, you wished you had when you were a young man. And I got a great bit of advice from a commanding officer who said to me, don't be so intense, Jonathan, just relax a little bit. OK, it's not it's not a race and, and look after your peer group. Don't compete with them all. That was great advice you gave me. And, and do you know what? I still have to work on that even now. But if, if you were given advice to yourself as a young man, what bit of advice? Do this. Don't do that. What would it be? I think reflecting on my career overall, the thing I probably regret most is not having talked to other people about difficult situations and asking their advice. Probably the one person, not surprisingly, I have talked to is Philip and my wife, um, because that's what happens within a marriage. Um, I mentioned Peter Inge was a mentor. Um, he was by coincidence, as opposed to me seeking him out on difficult occasions and asking. And, and I think 
um, and other other countries, militaries are rather better at formalizing this than the British have been. Um, formalizing a mentoring process where a commander in a high profile position has a mentor assigned to him, usually a retired senior officer. And that link is really important when you can say, what should I do? The only time that ever um, happened to me was when I was commanding the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps and a retired German four-star general was the mentor to the Corps and to myself. And it was really, really helpful. I, I wish I'd been aware of the value of that much earlier in my life, because there are some decisions that I took, some deliberate decisions that I took in a fairly hot-headed way that it might have been better if I'd picked up the phone beforehand and said, General, Brigadier, whatever, um, I'm in this situation, I'm thinking of doing this, this or this, what's your advice? Mm. I think asking someone else for advice, um, within the context of my marriage, I would probably decide what I was going to do, do it, and on occasions got it wrong, and it was Pippa who then had to pick up the pieces. Mm. Um, and she often said that she saved me from myself on more than one occasion, um, and in recent years, um, rather more frequently. Um, yeah. There we are. Yeah. No, so my, my answer to your question is pick someone you really respect and agree with them that they would be your mentor. And when you're in a difficult situation, um, have the humility mm. to pick up the phone and say, so what should I do? Yeah, yeah. Not a sign uh, of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength. Uh, only the I strong. Wish I wish I'd appreciate that earlier. Yeah, so, so true. And uh, there is that saying that only the strong can be vulnerable in an appropriate way. And, yeah. and obviously now in the profession I do with coaching and mentoring, but but getting the CEOs that I work with to have a mentor of another CEO, someone who can advise them who's been there, done that, or who's retired and their chairman. Uh, and that's, of course, something which I know you give good advice to so many different organizations uh, in your, your board roles. But uh, well, I mean, recently um, I've been mentoring myself, um, someone who's chief executive of a large multinational organization who knows that he's going to become chairman. Um, so our conversations have focused on how he should change his behaviors between being, chair, between being chief executive and then being chairman. Mm. And as everybody will know, that there are different requirements placed on someone who is the chairman and someone who is the chief executive. And we've had a lot of discussions helping him migrate from the pressure of the executive into the slightly standing back, but really critical leadership that the chairman of a board shows. That's a, a critical point that you make. And what I see is too few of the CEOs have that kind of mentoring. They're, they're often, certainly when they become a CEO, just put into the role, no training, no development. You know, you know how much money was invested in officers to prepare them. And you commanded the higher command of staff course to prepare people to, for higher levels. But, but what's your view about the tricks that business is missing in not developing its CEOs uh, or its CEOs who are becoming, becoming chairman? Well, I think you, you point to um, a very interesting issue. Um, the Army, Navy and the Air Force are very similar. We are prepared in the course of someone's career to take them out of the mainstream for a period of time. It might be three months or it might be the whole year at the staff college and invest in their personal development to prepare them for more demanding jobs later on. And I think the civilian world does not do that. Um, onboarding someone, um, going through an induction process to give them the chance to do the best in the appointment that they're going to go into is so really, really important. And I don't see enough civilian organizations 
actually doing that. Um, I mean, I, over the years, um, since I left the army in 2009, have, have given many leadership lectures, often to the title of Leadership in Turbulent Times. And, and I, I reflect on my own leadership development progress through the lens of the experiences of the military, not just in the things that I've done, but in the, in the structured way in which we go about decision-making, the structured way which we go about um, organizing how we're going to do things, the importance of stating your intent clearly, delegating tasks, and then supervising. Um, and there are so many other techniques which we develop in the military, and they're very useful for our situations in the military, but they are equally applicable in the business space as they are in the battle space, or indeed in the community space um, within a charity situation. And mm. we're very privileged and fortunate that people who invested us in us during our military development time, but the civilian world doesn't seem to do that. And I think that that's a real shame. And people um, are suboptimal as a result. And particularly, and again, this is something the military is very good at, we break out our decision-making into three principal levels, the strategic, the operational, and the tactical. Now, everyone talks about strategies. Oh, they don't really know what they're talking about, strategies. We've, most organizations have too many strategies, but a proper high-level strategy is where the big ideas are, where the big objectives are set. And then at the bottom level, you've got the tactical level, the shop floor level, where stuff is done. But what's really, really important and what is missing in so many organizations is the link between what is done on the ground and the big objective. Hmm. And that's the operational level, as we call it in the middle. It's the campaign level. It's where a plan is formulated to take you step by step, that meaningful activity on the ground, step by step in a logical focused fashion to achieve the strategic objective that you've set out. Because without that campaign plan in the middle, you're just doing stuff and hoping that you're going to reach your strategic objective. But yeah. we've got, if you've got a plan there, then, then you are um, using your resources properly. Uh, you are logically getting to where you want to get to. And many civilian organizations miss that step out. And I think that's a real suboptimal shame. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And two other fine commanding officers I, I worked for, John Griffin and John Stokoe, um, both gave me some, some great wisdom about that. And in fact, John um, Stokoe, I used to get as a retired general to come and do the ca campaign plan on a page uh, about where you are, where you need to get to, and, and the lines of development as, as we would know them, and, and what the mission and the vision was. Um, it's interesting, just coming back to your point about being a mentor, I do remember as an ADC driving uh, with Field Marshal Lynch when he went to see General Bagnall, as it was known, Ginge Bagnall, and the, you were part of the Ginger Group, which is this group of people who are forward thinking about moving the army on and developing its ideas. But he would go and see him to, to be mentored uh, on, on a regular basis. Um, t tell me what you remember about General Bagnall. Well, General Bagnall is at the heart of what I was just, just talking about. Um, he, he realized that in the context of the British Army in Germany during the Cold War in the 60s, 70s and early 80s, um, we didn't have an overall operational design. At the time, it seemed that the purpose of the army in Germany was to delay the Soviets for a few days while the politicians decided whether they were going to go nuclear or not go nuclear. Um, and that meant our, our battlefield activities were 
were fairly meaningless. Field Marshal Bagnall realized that what was missing was a campaign plan that could draw things together and give us the opportunity to, at a sub-nuclear level, um, have a campaign, have conduct meaningful military operations that would themselves cause the Soviets to, to think twice. Mm. And it was he who separated out our thinking between the strategic, the operational, and the tactical, and began to get operational level thinking uh, in the army. And he was so keen that that operational level thinking should be developed that he required a new doctrine to be written called the British Military Doctrine, which focused very much on this operational level, the art of maneuver, outmaneuvering the enemy, because you've got an overall campaign plan. And then having got the doctrine written, he set up the higher command and staff course to, to teach the brightest 24 colonels going on to be brigadier of their generation in the army, to give them an understanding of this thinking, which he knew would then cascade right down through the army, and it has cascaded right down through the army. So he was actually seminal in working out what needed to be done, getting our thinking sorted out at the strategic, operational, and tactical level, getting us thinking about outmaneuvering our enemy in time, thought, and space, and then providing the mechanism for teaching that so it would cascade down through the army, and it has completely influenced the British army as it's operated in the last 20 or 30 years. So yeah. he is a significant figure in British military development, British military thinking. And he influenced Peter Inge, he influenced me, he actually influenced the whole British army. The tragedy was uh, he died before his time and wasn't able to um, uh, roll those things much more into the civilian world, which I think he probably would have had the chance to do uh, had he lived longer. Yeah, no, uh, phenomenal, phenomenal man. Um, in the time we have available, there's so many things that I'd obviously love to, to chat with you about. But if I look at the Inspiring Leadership Compass and just pick one or two areas from there, I think one of the things that's always struck me is the MQ, the moral quotient, and, and that whole area of integrity and values, what you will do and what you won't do. Uh, what would you say about the importance of... Um, the values that you've lived by if there was the I mean there's so many but if there was the top three that have really influenced you in your life and you'd recommend to others well working out the right values and living by them is absolutely critical and top of that list is, is integrity mm. um, integrity is so critical because it determines how you're going to lead your life and as a leader it also determines the degree of enthusiasm with which people will follow you uh, I often say, and when I'm concluding my usual lecture, Leadership in Turbulent Times, I conclude by saying that there are two things that are particularly important in a leader. One is the character of the leader, and the second is their perceived integrity. The character of a leader is important because people look at that leader and make an initial decision, do I want to follow this person or do I not? And if you're attractive because you're interesting or you're adventurous or something about your character that people think, yes, I want to follow him or her, that's step one. But then step two is their perception of your integrity, which is determine how you lead your life, because that will determine the degree of enthusiasm with which they will then follow you. Mm -hmm. um, I, I make a slightly controversial example at the present moment. A lot of people look at our present prime minister, Boris Johnson, and find him quite an attractive character. 
he's amusing, he's clever, he's scruffy. I mean, he's, he's a whole bunch of things that a lot of people think are quite attractive and are prepared to follow Boris Johnson. But then you look at his perceived integrity and his relationship with truth, and a lot of people have doubts. Now, I'm not going to be overly critical because I don't want to get sued, but, but I think that's a classic case of look at the person, look at their character. Yeah, I'd quite like to follow him, but oh gosh, I'm not sure about his integrity. I'm not quite sure about how much respect he has on, on truth and honesty. Um, and that causes people to doubt. Um, and that's why character and integrity are really, really important. So coming back to your question, integrity is really important and honesty and your adherence to truth is really important because they're part and parcel of, of wrapped up in wrapped up in integrity as well. Yeah, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And I was actually going to uh, ask you that to the, the example you gave. Um, in pol politics in general, there is a perceived dearth of inspiring leadership based on those two things, uh, character and integrity. What could we do from the lessons that the military had with taking people out to train and develop them? What we could do to perhaps, if it's not too crazy, to develop more character and integrity in the politicians that we have? They, they say you get the politicians you deserve, but I think we deserve better than we're getting sometimes. Some are good, but some are questionable. A, a particular, what could be done to develop them, do you think? Well, I don't think anybody goes into politics unless they're ambitious. And I have no difficulty with ambition, provided ambition is more than just personal ambition. It's ambition to do the best for your wider community, in the case of a member of parliament, for their constituency and for the part of the country that, uh, that they represent. So ambition, the right kind of ambition, is absolutely fine. Um, then you need determination as well, determination to try and achieve what you've identified for yourself uh, is your ambition. But then I think it, it comes on to sort of the broader issues, which we've touched on already, to do with mentoring, to do with recognising that you haven't necessarily got all the answers, but also actually having the breadth of vision to realise that although, although you may have decided that this course of action is right, if the wider circumstances and context around you has changed, then having the confidence and humility to make a U-turn. Now, the media loves to criticize politicians for doing a U-turn. Personally, I don't share that criticism because if the circumstances around them have changed, the ambition, the objective may not have changed, but the scheme of maneuver required to achieve that ambition because the wider context has changed means actually that your scheme of maneuver, your campaign plan has got to be adjusted. The media criticize politicians and call that a U-turn but what I would say is that if you need to change the way you're going about achieving your objective, then top marks to you to have the confidence to change your plan, the mm. humility to do it and say, I probably got it wrong before, but I'm now going to do it this way, while you remain determined to, to achieve your ambition. Yeah. So um, there are a number of things that I think our politicians ought to be aware of and could do differently. But again, you see, you come back to the same point. The induction process of becoming a member of parliament, of then becoming, for goodness sake, a minister, a junior minister, hardly exists at all. Um, I mean, I worked for three years in the private office of the number of two minister, the Ministry of Defence, the Minister of State for the Armed Forces, three different ministers. 
and one saw someone coming in who had no experience of, of defence, no experience of the issues that we had to deal with, but suddenly had to be the decision maker. Well, that's that's a pretty suboptimal way of, of going about life. And we see a prime minister of the day has a reshuffle and he takes the secretary of state for education and makes them the secretary of state for defence or for health. That person may have no background in that particular area at all. And it sets them at such a disadvantage that um, there should be a formalized process whereby some form of induction is given to people so that they can use their personal qualities, um, use the abilities they've got in a meaningful and focused way, rather than just being parachuted in and expect to be brilliant on day one. It's it's almost impossible undertaking. Yeah, no, so so true, so true. And that leads me on to the, the second component, which is PQ, meaning and purpose, purpose quotient. So uh, you've made very clear in your book and in what you've just been speaking about now, that ambition is fine, um, but it's gotta be this combination of individual plus the service to the country, in particular case, where you as a military man for 40 years. What would you say with all the different things you're doing now, what's the sort of the unifying meaning and purpose that gives your life fulfillment these days? Well, it's a, it's a very fair question. Um, and it comes down to priorities. And I've realized over time that setting the right priorities are really, really important. And I'm not sure that I've always had my priorities in the right order. Um, where might various things sit in your life? Um, service to your country, that's obviously quite important. Um, doing your duty, whether it's in the military or doing your duty within the commercial private enterprise that you're involved in, that's obviously important. Uh, doing the right thing by your family uh, is, is a really important thing. And of course, if you come back to the spiritual question, then doing the right thing in terms of your faith is really important. I think looking back over particularly my military career, I had worked out that following the teaching of Christ was the most important, but then doing my duty for the army and for the country was probably the next most important. And then my family came below that. And I look back at some of the decisions I made within my family context, I realized I was pretty selfish and pretty, pretty unfair in some of the additional tasks that I took on or postings that I was happy to do at huge cost to my family. Mm. And I think I got that balance probably wrong. Mm. Um, and, I, I've, and I've realized that subsequently. Now, you have to balance up um, overall ambition, achieving the aim, uh, but also with looking after your family appropriately. And I think there were some times when I could have put a higher priority at certain moments on the family for the development of my children and subsequently grandchildren, rather than just, I'm going to do that because I think that's the right thing from a duty point of view to do, and Pippa can pick up the pieces. And I think I made her pick up the pieces far too often. So mm. getting your priorities right um, is a really critical thing to do. And if you can be clever enough to do it early enough in your life, you'll lead a more balanced life. I think I've only learned this lesson retrospectively looking back and thinking, mm, probably could have got my priorities slightly differently. Yeah, I, I admire you for, for saying that. It's a tough one to admit. And when I look at the different CEOs and chairmen that I'm uh, honored to coach, 
I know time and again, a number of them have made the wrong calls because they end up um, with marital problems or children who are dysfunctional. And certainly I remember talking to the doctor who looked after all the senior officers in the Ministry of Defence when I was the ADC. And uh, she was shocked at the state of the families and the children and the impact on them by the obsession that was required, or they felt it was required to, to do their duty. But you are very lucky that you've got four lovely children, uh, a daughter and, and three sons. Um, without perhaps expressing too much, would you be happy to share what they've done in their lives and, and, and how proud you are of them? Um, yes, I mean, I, um, in the context of what I've just said about, I probably placed undue pressures on the family and particularly on Pippa, my wife. Um, notwithstanding all that, we have got four children and they have come through their childhood into adults in a, a remarkably um, successful is probably the wrong word, but okay, successful way. Um, Tom, my eldest, uh, set up a recruitment business in the city of London, uh, which was pretty successful. But then in 2008, he did what he really wanted to do, which was start up a charity initially in Sierra Leone in Africa, because that was the poorest country in the world at the time. Street Child uh, now operates in 19 countries in Africa and Asia, and it's a fairly large charity, which he heads and, and he drives. He has wow. got the kind of focus that I hugely respect um, and has made a very successful charity. My, my second son, um, different characteristic, much more dutiful, rather like myself, I joined the army, did two tours in Iraq, tour in Afghanistan, did say to me after the third of those tours, is there more to life, Dad, than being shot at the whole time? To which I said there was. Uh, he got married about the same time. He left and he now works in the city of London in a company called Ruffer, which is an asset management, wealth management company. Um, and he's a, he's a director of that. And he'll be the first to admit that the success he's had in that company is entirely driven by the experiences he had in the army for all the reasons that we were just discussing. His ability to look at a problem, to analyze it, and then to apply the leadership techniques that he picked up during the six or seven years that he was in the army. Um, my third son, um, less academic, but much more people focused, um, spent seven years as a ski instructor in the Alps, is very good person to person, uh, now runs a company called Ski Yodel, which is a kind of Airbnb on steroids um, in the Alps in the skiing industry. It's a sort of tech-based company, but um, it, it's something that, that sort of appeals to him and uses his much more practical background. Um, Tom is married, got four boys. Bertie's married and got three boys. Uh, Ollie is married and got a boy and a girl, which leaves Richenda, our daughter, um, great fun, um, great organiser. As we say, she organised her own christening from the pram. Um, <laughs> been a party planner working for the Admirable Crichton and quintessentially. Um, she married a first-class cricket player, which was very clever because her three brothers are great sportsmen. But Richenda married a young man who is delightful, who was a better sportsman than her three brothers. So Tom, Bertie and Ollie really respect Greg because they know with a cricket bat, with a golf club and the tennis racket, he's better than all of them. And they really <laughs> liked him for it. A really charming, humble young man. But he scored 7,000 first class runs. So um, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Tom, yeah. Bertie and Ollie. Um, he's now uh, retrained as a school teacher and teaches in a state school in, in North London. And they've got a little girl. So that's, that's my family. Um, four children, all happily married and, and 10 grandchildren. Yeah. And um, most of them live quite close to us here. So we see a lot of them, which is, which is a great joy. 
Yeah, and and your wife Philippa still um, having done so much over the years, she took on a busy role um, and is in her third year. Would you just tell us about that? Yes, um, my wife Philippa was High Sheriff of Norfolk, 2014-2015, um, which is a significant role within a county, but it's a it's a role that you do for one year. But uh, three years ago, she was appointed Lord Lieutenant of Norfolk which, as I'm sure our listeners will know, in every county, the Queen has a representative who is the Lord Lieutenant, who represents the, the monarchy and the sovereign in their county. And Pippa became Lord Lieutenant of Norfolk, um, and she's now in, in her third year, uh, which for us in Norfolk is particularly special because one of the royal residents is Sandringham, um, where the Queen traditionally comes for Christmas. Um, she didn't, as we know, this year come for Christmas, but this weekend she's now arrived because she loves to be in Norfolk at Sandringham at the date of the accession when she became Queen 70 years ago. And that's why she was determined to come to, to Norfolk this year and it, it is here now. But uh, Pippa has the privilege of representing the Queen in the county when the Queen is not here. Uh, and she's supported by a number of deputy lieutenants of which um, I've been a DL in Norfolk for about 10 years. And as it happens, I'm also a DL in, in, in Greater London as well. So um, it's another way of, of serving. It's yeah. another way of fulfilling your duty. Um, and Pippa as Lord Lieutenant, it's a pretty busy job. Um, we had uh, last Thursday, one of her predecessors as Lord Lieutenant, he'd been Lord Lieutenant for 26 years. We had his memorial service in Norwich Cathedral, the Bishop of Norwich preached. Um, but half the royal family came to that, um, wow. th that service, which if you think about managing... A royal visit by one royal is quite busy, but when you've got um, four or five members of the royal family uh, all arriving in different directions for the same thing, that made Pippa, myself, my wife, um, pretty busy as Lord Lieutenant last Thursday. But she relishes it and she's jolly good at it. Um, sure. And uh, I'm very proud of her uh, in, in that role. Yeah, I can understand why uh, she is a remarkable, a remarkable leader in her own right. So we've come to the end of our time. Um, I just, uh, in a moment, just introduce you again for your two-minute top leadership tip. But I, um, I, I, I think this is uh, the moment. Before we do that, it, it, legacy would be the, the third of the uh, the components I want to talk about. In a professional way and in a personal, private, family way, what would you like your legacy uh, to be when when people are at your own funeral? What would you like your legacy to be? In a professional sense, I would like my legacy to be a reflection on the fact that I tried to do my best for the people with whom I worked and the people whom I had the privilege of, of leading. And that was whether they were serving soldiers or they're now veteran members of the military, to make sure that people were well looked after, they had a fair deal, they had a fair deal in terms of pay and pensions, they had a fair deal in terms of where they lived. They had the right equipment and the right motivation for doing the jobs they were required to do. So if people thought I'd made a contribution to looking after my soldiers and their families, um, I, I tried to do that um, in the command appointments that I had. And I'm continuing to try and do that through veterans organisations such as uh, Help the Heroes, which Bryn and Emma Parry and Pippa and I founded uh, on the 1st of October 2007. So if there was to be a reflection that he did his best for other people, um, 
I, I would be quite comfortable with that. Um, from a personal point of view, I think one's legacy is one's children and one's grandchildren and giving them the best chance in life and encouraging them to be the best themselves, um, I think is, is, is a really important legacy. Yeah, lovely, thank you very much. So uh, let me just now uh, introduce you for the, the two minute top tip. Um, General the Lord Dannett, we're very lucky to have you on this series and sharing your wisdom and experience. What would be your two minute top tip on leadership that you'd give to all those people listening in 55 countries around the world? Life is complex. It's not as simple as ABC, but I would say three things. Aim high, set yourself an objective, then stretch yourself a little bit by raising that bar. Stretch yourself, aim high. Then if you decide to give yourself a challenging target, you've got to work jolly hard to achieve that target. So be the best, be the best you possibly can be. Be determined, work hard to achieve that objective. And on the way, the third thing to remember is courage. Courage, I think, is key. Yes, there's physical courage in being brave, in being bold, but there's moral courage in determining what the right thing is to do in a given situation and doing it. And the funny thing about moral courage is the more you use it, the easier it is to use the next time. You can increase your stock of moral courage, whereas your stock of physical courage perhaps sometimes ebbs away. So life isn't as simple as ABC, but if you remember to aim high, be the best, and remember that courage is key, that will set you well in life. Aim high, be the best, and remember that courage is key. Thank you very much indeed, superb. Thank you, Richard. It's been a real honor having you on the 200th episode. Thank you, Jonathan. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you gonna do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you. <laughs>